old pilot's plain tales. I believe he is dead. To the Right Honourable Malcolm Rifkind, Secretary of State for Transport. Sir, I have the honour to submit the report by Mr D. F. King, an Inspector of Air Accidents, on the circumstances of the accident to British Airways BAC 111 Gulf Bravo Juliet Romeo Tango that occurred over Didcot, Oxfordshire, on 10th of June 1990. I have the honour to be, sir, your obedient servant, K.P.R. Smart, Chief Inspector of Air Accidents. So begins a dry, emotionless description of one of the most remarkable events to ever befall a commercial pilot. The story starts in a hangar 24 hours before the incident. No, actually, the story starts on the engineering boards of the British Aircraft Corporation many years before. Replacing the windshields of an aircraft is always a bit tricky. They are usually designed to be a plug fit that required them to be inserted into the hole from the inside of the cockpit. This is always a bit tricky in the cramped space of a flight deck. Whatever the reason, the BAC design engineers decided that it was okay for the glass to be fitted from the outside of the aircraft. After all, it was going to be secured by 90 bolts, so there was no way it was going to pop out. Now we can return to the hangar. The captain's side front windshield was due for replacement, and the shift maintenance manager, a popular and experienced engineer, decided to do the job himself during his night shift. This was the sort of job that didn't really need him to refer to the engineering manuals, so he started unscrewing the old bolts. It was a little hard taking some of them out from around the windshield, as many were covered in paint and hard to remove, so those were discarded and the engineer went to a gloomy corner of the hangar where the parts racks lived and pocketed a bunch of similar bolts to replace them with. Not bothering to put on his glasses or check the parts specifications, he also ignored the parts manager who thought he'd grabbed the wrong ones. The bolts looked fine for the job, and the new screen was soon in place. Unfortunately, being the shift maintenance manager, there was no one more senior to make an independent check of his work, otherwise somebody might have noticed that most of the screws were 26 hundredths of an inch too small in diameter, and some were a tenth of an inch too short. Captain Lancaster and his crew departed the aircraft uneventfully from Birmingham, with a load of 81 holidaymakers bound for Malaga in Spain. The first officer was flying the leg, and as they climbed away, both pilots released their shoulder straps, and the captain loosened his lap strap. Back in the cabin, the four cabin crew were preparing to serve meals to the passengers. They had been airborne less than a quarter of an hour and passing 17,000 feet when Nigel Ogden checked on the pilots to ask if they would like a nice cup of tea. As he turned to leave, there was a noise like a bomb going off. Looking back, he saw that the front windshield had blown out and the captain had been sucked out of his seat and was hanging half out of the aircraft. 
The BAC-111 was suffering from an explosive decompression and everything was flying forwards out of the hole past the body of the captain. Paperwork, checklists, manuals, a fire extinguisher and the air was swirling with the mist that forms when pressure drops. With his legs pushing the control yoke forward, Captain Lancaster had inadvertently forced the aircraft into a steep dive. In addition, the flight deck door had been blown off its hinges, collapsing onto the centre console, blocking the throttles. Before he had completely disappeared through the window and fallen to his death, Nigel Ogden grabbed Lancaster's belt and hung on for grim death. Outside the aircraft and flailing in the freezing slipstream, Tim Lancaster was in the most hostile of environments. Wearing only the usual short-sleeved cotton shirts, he was being battered and flung around by a vicious 345-mile-an-hour wind at minus 17 degrees centigrade. In Fahrenheit, that was over 30 degrees of frost, without even worrying about the chill factor. The air was so thin that he would soon die from hypoxia. He was already starting to lose consciousness. First Officer Atchinson struggled to regain control of the aircraft. He was in a forced descent, which was actually a good thing as he needed to get down to thicker air, and the crew were clearing the debris away from the throttles so he could stop the aircraft from accelerating. He tried to make a call on the radio. Mayday, mayday, London, this is Speedbird 5390. Mayday, mayday, may London replied, but Atchison couldn't hear them over the appalling noise and repeated the call several times. Back in the cabin, flight attendant Susan Price was calming the passengers and securing what equipment she could, but up in the flight deck, Nigel Ogden was struggling to keep hold of the captain. The cold blasts of air coming through the window were giving him frostbite and bruising. The icy wind had made him nearly blind and he was starting to become exhausted. The remaining two cabin crew had made it to the front to help and they relieved Ogden, but by then the captain had shifted and they could only just hang on to Lancaster's ankles. The captain's body had started to slip downwards and he was now pinned to the outside of the side windows. They could all see his head being viciously banged against the side of the aircraft again and again, blood splattering from the limp body. Just inches away was his dead, empty stare. Convinced that Lancaster had died, the crew thought they might drop him, but First Officer Atchison refused to agree worrying that his body might take out an engine and put them into an even worse situation. Levelling the aircraft and re-engaging the autopilot, Atchison at last made proper contact with air traffic. Sutton Control said, We've been advised it's a pressurisation failure. Is that the only problem? Uh, negative, sir, Atchison replied. The captain is half sucked out of the aircraft. I, I understand... I believe he is dead. The first officer was in an awful situation. In a freezing flight deck, hardly being able to hear air traffic, he had no chance, no checklist, no manual, and no captain. 
With no clear idea of his best options, he asked to be guided to Gatwick, since he knew the airfield from memory, but Southampton was offered instead. Not properly realising his situation, the controller was waiting for a decision, but the first officer was in no position to know what was best. Eventually he was turned in the direction of Southampton and given a frequency change. Uh, I'm afraid uh, we have some debris on the flight deck, and uh, could you confirm the frequency you changed me to? He replied. Atchim was struggling with an appalling situation, and at times this wasn't fully understood by his controllers. However, he was finally lined up with the runway at Southampton and made visual contact, eventually being given permission to land. His touchdown was perfect, and Atchison brought the aircraft quickly to a halt. He landed 22 minutes after the emergency. The flight had only lasted 35 minutes in total. The emergency crews rolled up to the BAC-111. Soon after, it came to a halt. All the passengers were unharmed, but Ogden had frostbite to his face and hands, a dislocated shoulder, and damage to one of his eyes. The captain's limp body was pulled back into the cockpit, battered, bloody, and white with cold. The passengers left via the normal air stair. Predictably, Ogden had to yell at a couple who tried to get their hand baggage out of the overhead bins, despite the emergency evacuation. When the fire and medical crews arrived, they immediately loaded Captain Lancaster onto a stretcher, where, quite incredibly, and to the delight of his crew, he came too, uttering the words, I want to eat. Apart from the remarkable story of survival that this tale brings, it is also important from another aspect. During the investigation into the accident, instead of walking in and asking the engineer shift manager what he'd done wrong, the investigators took a different approach. They brought a psychologist with them to aid in their interview. They didn't accuse the engineer or fix blame. Instead, they made him part of the investigation to determine the cause. They asked him what he had done on the day he had replaced the windscreen and why he thought it had failed. This approach put him more at ease and led the team to discover exactly what had transpired. This was one of the first times human factors was being used to find out why the problem occurred by examining the underlying causes rather than merely allocating blame. In the end, everyone recovered from the ordeal. The worst off amongst the crew turned out to be flight attendant Nigel Ogden, who, despite his heroic role, suffered post-traumatic stress from the incident. He was eventually taken off flight status for medical reasons and took a ground job outside the airline, at first working for the Salvation Army. Nigel Ogden's role that day deserved a medal and international acclaim. He was a true hero who had saved the life of his captain against all odds. Later computations of the wind speed and forces show that he had maintained a steady grip in the freezing cold against an equivalent weight that exceeded 500 pounds. 
as to where he had attained such strength, Ogden remarked simply that he had played a lot of rugby over the years. Captain Lancaster spent some time in hospital, but he recovered remarkably quickly, returning to flying a mere five months later. At the age of 55, he left British Airways, but carried on his flying career with EasyJet, although he's now retired from commercial flying entirely. First Officer Atchison and the cabin crew members, Nigel Ogden and Susan Gibbons, were awarded the Queen's Commendation for Valuable Service in the Air. In addition, Atchison was also awarded the Polaris Award by the International Federation of Airline Pilots Associations, given to airline crews in recognition for acts of exceptional airmanship or heroic action. Mm -hmm.